Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Latinique Politics Refresh. I'm one of your hosts, Matthew Lawrence, and joining me today is one of our other co-hosts, Robert. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Matt? Um, we are uh, we are sad uh, to report that Ruth has moved on from the Politics Refresh podcast. Uh, she, you know, we're very happy for her. She got a great job and doesn't have time to do this with us anymore. Um, but that's okay. Uh, Matt and I are still here. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the biggest losses of Ruth is I obviously love reading all of her pieces there at Latinique, and I'm sure. Once she gets a little bit more settled in, she'll throw something out there. So just be on the lookout, Latinique's politics for Ruth, um, whatever next piece may be. I'm looking forward to it. Robert, do you want to start us off here with our first topic of the day? Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to be covering the uh, surge of uh, migrants at our southern border. Um, so right now we're on pace for two million migrants. Migrants, excuse me, this year. Um, and you know, this is obviously this is a major major issue, you know, the Biden administration policy had been to allow um, migrant children who are unaccompanied to cross, which, um, you know, while being a more humane policy is something that encourages border crossing. Um, and, you know, immigration is an issue that has plagued the United States for as long as it's been created, you know, there's, there have been immigration issues in this country forever and it's always been from a different source um but this is a great place to live and you know it's a it's a hot button issue right now so let's dive in yeah and if you remember in 2016 and immigration is always a hot button issue like you said 2016 immigration and the wars overseas were really what Donald Donald Trump elected like it can well, and everyone ever, nobody liked Hillary like that was <laughs> very true. Well, uh, that was a problem I mean, before oh, that, okay. so like, even during the, the Republican the primary. primary, yeah. I mean, once he said build a wall, it was sort of like this, uh, you know, because people have to play around immigration because it is such like a, a tough and complex topic to talk about that people who wanted border security, they sort yeah. of saw Donald Trump as being their champion, even though he never really built the wall and didn't really. Well, it's like, it's a brilliant, simple answer to a complex right. problem that doesn't work, but is great for getting you elected, right? Like that's, right. I mean, a border wall is not only ineffective at keeping people and drugs out, it just doesn't work. You know, like there's a, there's a great speech where Trump is actually talking about it. And he's saying, there's no way, there's no way you can get over, maybe a rope. And then it just moves on. And it's like, well, yeah, if they have a rope, they can get over the wall. So it's, it's, it's a funny, it's a it's a funny thing where it's this great political expedient, but nothing nothing about it actually works. Um, but now we're in a point where people expect a simple answer to this incredibly complex problem. Yeah, and I really am sympathetic because when I, I hate when people boil down these complex um, and this is a right wing problem in terms of border uh, the border issue where. On, on Fox News, a lot of people will just talk about, like, caravans of migrants carrying the virus coming up from South America. And when... The virus that they don't believe in. The virus that but... they don't believe in. And when you, when you really think about what it takes for someone to walk hundreds of miles, risk their life and their family, 
to to have a shot, a chance. Like they, they're not even positive that they're actually going to get in. Like I'm pretty sure most asylee requests get denied, right? And they yeah. actually do get sent back over the border. So this isn't a guarantee thing. And so just the lack of the lack of compassion, really, yeah. for the people who really do want to come here and do want a chance at a better life. I am sympathetic to that as you know the grandson of an immigrant from England. It's obviously much easier to get over here from Britain. But on the other side of my family, I'm not sure what your background is, Robert, but I'm also uh, a little bit Irish. And we just celebrated our national holiday of getting drunk and blacking out in uh, dark lit pubs. Yeah, but <laughs> you think about the potato famine and what drove a lot of Irish immigrants to, to come to America. And they had pretty much the same exact arguments thrown against them. Well, they're lazy Irish people. They're not going to work. They're, no, they're not really good for anything. They used to have signs, right? No Irish allowed in this place of establishment. I mean, that was obviously more blatant. Type yeah, of, uh, I mean, I mean look, like, my, uh, you know, just to, just to answer the personal question, my, my background is primarily Italian. And my, so my great grandfather came over, he went through Ellis Island, um, and, you know, faced discrimination up and down my, my dad and like continuing on to my dad, like they, they still, there was still anti Italian sentiment. It's very different. However, I think for, for both of our families, because they're white, you know what I mean? Like there's not a, there's not the racial, um, bias against them. It's not as as severe but you know this is this is kind of what i meant by it's been going on forever there's just always a new source of immigrants to the u.s and eventually right they get incorporated into our society and they end up being really productive members of our society and they make us stronger we're a nation of immigrants but yeah you know it's like my like my great-grandfather fought in world war one to get citizenship in the u.s like that was the deal Crazy. which is nuts <laughs> um and uh, yeah, where, yeah. Go ahead. Do you know? Can I, do you know where he fought? My grandfather fought in World War One for the British. He was at the Somme. Oh, he was an electrical engineer. He was one of those guys that used to to dig wires as the lines oh, changed. Oh God! And he used to have to get down the trenches. They'd blow up a wire over there, and they'd be like, "All right, go and go and fix it." Oh my God! Um, yeah, pretty crazy stories. I um I'm not sure I'm not sure where he fought. I know he was a he was an infantryman. Um, I don't I don't know actually what location he was fighting in um but you, like this is this is the type of stuff that immigrants do for the country you know what i mean they come over and they they want to they want to believe in the american dream and that's that's beautiful in its own way right like they they're like you said they're crossing hundreds and hundreds of miles um with their families you know putting themselves at all sorts of risk because south and central america are dangerous places like they, yeah. there are there are large swaths of territory that are just cartel controlled at this point, which actually leads me into something else I wanted to talk about with this issue, which is that part of the reason that we have so many immigrants, right, is because of the war on drugs and like how militarized those areas have become against the wishes of those governments, right? Yeah, you're talking about in Mexico, for example, entire... Yeah states you know i have a, a few friends yes. that are from mexico raised one friend lived near tijuana and the way he described it is if you keep your head down you just have to know who the boss is and you're you're okay 
But in, in some places in South and Central America, you're talking about entire swaths that are just narco states where the right. government is a puppet of the cartel. And the war on or drugs... Just, or just not present, right? Like there's no... Yeah, there's there just no nothing. State. Right. You're talking, you're talking about sections of well-developed nations at this point who the U.S. has a lot of influence over that are failed states, in effect. Yeah, you're right, because they don't exert any control over their borders. And like my friend would talk about, the people who protect the small businesses in those areas are cartels, strangely enough, right? Well, it's, I mean, down. you know, you say, we say protect, protect. right? It's like, right. You, it's like, the old it's like we won't burn your store down if you pay us dues. I mean, it's it's racketeering. It's, you know, what the mafia did in the U.S. for decades and it's decades. New York City, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, but but this is the other thing. So there, it, for too many topics in the United States media, because our media is so reliant on headlines causing, I don't know if it's necessarily outrage, but just like catchy, simple answers. Yes. Some people are, they don't want to hear any opposition to a border policy any opposition to yeah a border yeah policy they, they just want to evil you're terrible why do you want borders what do you mean well which is which borders. is just dumb i mean it's it's not smart it's not good policy right you need to you need to have a way for these people to enter the country in a legal manner safely i just like as as a liberal i don't think that i think i think the real problem is that in 2016 you know, when you had Trump running the immigration policy and, or I guess it was 2017. Cause yeah. Um, and you had them, you had immigrants and asylum seekers being treated like animals, put in cages, um, horrible conditions. You know, we have, there are credible reports of, uh, you know, forced sterilization amongst um, some detainees and that, that sparks a lot of outrage in a way that, sure. you know, because it's a humanitarian issue. I, I, I'm not familiar or aware of the forced sterilization. That is like absolutely insane. If that is happening, the idea that that you want to talk about this they're, Jiang province, what's what we're going to talk about in a, in a few minutes. Yeah. They're, they're, they're fairly credible. I don't know what is expanded upon that. It was like a, it was a fairly large story during the election um, but for a couple one, of weeks. One thing the Biden administration is finding out and these are reports coming out in the past few weeks that he's getting a lot of heat for, is that they're expanding the migrant detention facilities because yes. when people come over, you don't know who they are. You can't vet them. What yeah, you, 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 put them in, you put them in a building, and you can say that's not a cage, but that's what everyone was I mean, telling Donald Trump was a cage, right? So, so right, it's like if – no, but I'm talking literal cages. I'm not – I'm like <laughs> – I'm saying like people confined to – like well, they're, tiny they're using the same exact facilities they're just building them out and those facilities were built under barack obama and that administration because right to wrap this point again this is a very complex issue there is no exactly that's the thing there is no good answer and and the real the real good answer right would be a legislative overhaul of our immigration policy that offered a path to citizenship for asylum seekers right sure or at least a green card and the, you know a continuation because there are people that really desperately need to be out of these states. Um, when I when I worked for I, I worked for an immigration law firm my junior year of college, and we did primarily asylum cases. These stories broke my heart every day. Um, 
I, I can't discuss specifics because of uh, confidentiality reasons, but they they were so they were so heartbreaking to hear people who so fervently believed in the American dream being told that they couldn't stay um, because they did something tiny wrong. And the, you know, the worst part was this was, I was working there under sessions as attorney general and he changed, he did two really horrible things in my opinion. He changed the guidelines so that women escaping domestic violence under or threats of violence from husbands uh, or um, stalkers couldn't receive asylum in the U.S., which was horrific. Um, and also, they they did something really really tricky. I so one one of the days I actually went to the immigration court in Chicago, which is the immigration court for almost all of the Midwest. Um, and they had scheduled almost everyone's asylum case on the same day. So they had a, they had a, you know, it was like a, it was, it's just in a skyscraper in Chicago, but there's, there was a floor completely full, no, no breathing room. It was hot and sweaty and they did it so that people wouldn't, would be, would be forced to drive long distances multiple times because they knew the courts couldn't actually take all of the um, immigration cases on that day. So they knew that there would be repetition of this. And a lot of these people don't have driver's licenses, but if they don't show up to their court date, they get deported. So mm. how do you make the court date and how do you like, so they're hoping that they get pulled over and immediately deported. Um, That's absolutely not crazy. Drivers. Yeah. So, well, they make it really difficult. And yeah, sort of what you were talking to in the beginning, you know, uh, Nick Gillespie, editor of Reason, was on Bill Maher show real time. I'm not sure if you're a fan or not. I'm um, not, but go ahead. He was, yeah, well, they were talking about immigration. Nicholas, he was talking about the American dream and sort of this demonization of immigrants. Like, you know, there's one thing to be said if people are coming in and they immediately are expecting uh, checks from the government or something, right? Like that's, I could see that conservative argument for well, we can't do that. We can't just have everyone come in and pay. But the reality is that's not what's happening. What really happens is these people set up small businesses. They set up restaurants, laundry cleaner, small stores in you know, Hoboken here. And they yeah. become part of the community. And then they have children who go to the same schools as everyone else. They become American. And they build up the fabric of this country. And you really they, feel They bad. make us better. Like that at the core, the majority of these people coming across the border make Americans and, and uh, the U.S. culture a, a better melting pot. Yeah, and, and sort of maybe to end this segment and, and move on to what we want to talk about next is you really feel bad in this year of 2020 because the people who are hardest hit in the pandemic were small businesses. And a lot of these small businesses are run by first-generation immigrants. And they really yeah. got the wrong end of the stick here in terms of pandemic relief and just the shutdowns and overall, and, you know, for a lot of the reason it wasn't their own fault. So that's and really just, a, just, just like one final thing. Our, our economy is so dependent on these migrant workers, right? All of our agricultural fields, so much of our, so much of the like jobs that 
a lot of Americans don't want to do are done by migrant workers. And I don't, I don't, I, I never understood like the conservative argument that they're bad for the economy because they're necessary for the economy. We can't, the way it's currently structured, it doesn't work without people who just, who, who are willing to do some of these jobs that a lot of Americans don't want to do. Um, sure. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's just, point. yeah, that was just final thing I wanted to say on that topic. Yeah, no problem. And uh, let's shift gears a little bit um, to what's going on in the foreign policy space. You and I are yes. big nerds when it comes to geopolitics. I love, I love, I love me some foreign policy. And there was two pretty big dust-ups yeah. that happened with two of America's, you could argue, argue biggest geopolitical foes, Russia and China. Yeah. And so maybe you can explain a little bit more what happened so you can tell the audience you know what happened at this meeting between blinken and his foreign counterpart in china yes absolutely so uh this was the this was the first real in-person high-level meeting between u.s officials and chinese officials under the biden administration um blinken pretty much right out of the gate um started attacking his you know his chinese counterparts about Human rights abuses, which we briefly covered about the Uyghurs um, in our last episode, um, they started talking about, uh, you know, the hyper aggression that China has been demonstrating, both in economic trade um, and also with their foreign policy concerning um, the South China Sea uh, and uh, Taiwan. And then they started, and and he also he also touched on Hong Kong and their repression of democracy and pro democracy movement there. Um, and you know, the to their credit, the Chinese uh, the Chinese representatives fired right back at us um, about how we are a nation that is you know preaching democracy while doing all sorts of things that are wrong. Um, and you know we're built on. I think I, was it them that attacked us for being built on um, a genocide of Native Americans? Is that, that was Russia? That was, that was Russia. Oh, okay. Sorry. It's you know. Well, but this is this we'll is cover that later. Propaganda. This is communist propaganda one hundred and one. Sure. Right. Like if you're yeah. uh, into history and you look back at the Cold War, one of the biggest criticisms of Soviet propaganda, uh, and I'm talking about Soviet Russia. Yep. Would be, you know. America talks about how communism is bad, which it is, obviously. But it's they would push out their propaganda about the United States treatment of African Americans, of minorities, um, that sort of thing. And so well, it's so it's ahead. interesting you mention that because part of the reason you know you can historically trace this back. Part of the reason that some of the civil rights uh, changes were so successful in shape in in actually occurring were because the U.S. was more concerned, like the high-level leadership, obviously not, you know, Southern representatives, but high-level U.S. foreign policy and, you know, U.S. presidential leadership were more concerned about Russia than they were about, um, you know, continuing the Jim Crow system, uh, which is why you see, which is why you saw some of those things start to fall like, for example, when um, diplomats from Africa would come, they would come to the UN and then they would be driven down to um, DC to meet with the president. Um, Maryland, which is between those two things, states, 
had uh, heavy segregation. And that was a thorough embarrassment to the U.S. And part of the reason it changed is because of unrelenting pressure from JFK um, to get them to change. Uh, I forget. It's a, there's a very famous highway that connects those two places. I think it's Highway 55, but I could be wrong. Um, and those, like that sort of pressure actually caused changes and advances for civil rights in America, um, strangely. Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, the United States has this weird um, dichotomy where there's the propaganda of the American myth. And I'll just call it that because we all want to believe in it, in that America is a shining city on a hill, democracy where there's equal rights for everybody. And the United States for a long time just hasn't lived up to that. I mean, that's sort of America we're, like... Um, that's the when we're, that yeah, to when we're at our best, we're amazing. Right when we're living up to what we purport to be, that's that's the end all be all best thing ever. Um, but it's a it's a fight every day from every concerned American to keep it to keep it going in that direction and from sliding back into repression and um, you know a lot of the ugly aspects of uh, what America actually has been throughout history. Yeah, and. and- Tying this back, so the Chinese... Uh, yes, let's minister, talk about China. I guess it would be called. Yeah, the Chinese foreign minister essentially cited um, increasing hate crimes against Asian Americans. Asian Americans. And I, you know, I hate using the term Asian Americans because you're talking about like 40 yeah, different countries. But, well, the thing is, it's kind of an accurate term, right? Because to the people committing those hate crimes, they don't, they don't specify, sure. right? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Unless there was a, a Lane or, or Ruth here, when they talk about Asians, they're talking about people from the Indian subcontinent. <laughs> but that's a little bit different. That's that's but, been a while. Yeah. How does how does the United States respond? Because listen, I I think America needs to stand up to China, but I also realize like, man, this man, this is tough. There is no easy answer to standing up to China. They are a world player. They are yeah. a member of the P five plus one, and they are they are on the rise. They are serious. I mean, and they seem like they're kicking our ass quite frankly. So I view it, this, you can feel free to disagree with me, but I view China today actually as, as the U S viewed Russia in the fifties. They are, they are our chief competitor. We, we really don't have to worry about anyone else in my opinion um, for competition right now. And I think the way to win is through a modern version of containment theory. Um, I do not think that, um, I think that China has significant problems within its own regime that will eventually not cause, may, not necessarily cause a collapse like the Soviet Union, but will prevent them from uh, seizing the reins of global power. I don't think that, because the, the majority of states in the world today that are major players are democracies, I don't think they want to hand the reins over to um an authoritarian state that is committing a genocide. Um, I think that part of the way to do that is to realize that Europe is no longer the keystone ally that we once had, that we're going to have to vie with China every, at every turn for their, um, for their affection. And, but what's great about, what's great about China's positioning in the world is that it actually gives us a whole new set of allies to exploit at their expense, which is, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and, and India. Four nations 
which all have an incredible interest in keeping China contained to a regional powerhouse and being able to compete with them, all of which, um, in my opinion, a sort of, there's, there's an interesting argument to be made for an economic agreement with those four countries that would prevent China from um, being able to effectively take control of the entire region by combining our five uh, economic outputs into a, you know, a containment theory against China in the region. Right. Well, I, let me know what you think about this, because I think a key difference between the USSR and, and the current flavor of communism in China is that China isn't traditionally a hard power expansionist nation. Right. Their of expansion is economics. Yes. And that's a little bit harder to, to combat because, you know, Russia, they were trying to export these revolutions all over the place, right? Cambodia, Vietnam, um, yeah, in Eastern Europe, right? Like, and so there was an actual place you had to meet them to contain them. In China, you know, they're just showing up to these African dictators and saying, we'll give you money with no strings attached. Usually the United States... Well, there are strings attached. <laughs> well, the strings attached is the strings attached is don't vote against us in the UN. Don't bring sanction against us in these. Well, the strings attached are a little uh, bit more than that. The strings attached are, I mean, the strings attached are Chinese workers are going to come in and do all the work. We're going to employ more Chinese people. You are going to buy from China. You are not going to buy from the U.S. There are there are significant strings attached that I think but, they're but, happy but what to is, do. But what is that so, string attached in the end? Like that, I mean. If you were, for, no, you know, for, it's a great deal for the dictators up front. And then, you know, on the back end, when they realize that they're not actually seeing any of the benefits of the infrastructure project that they put forward, it's a problem. But that is, this is kind of what I'm talking about. You don't, we don't need a new NATO, right? We don't like in, in, in that way. We need, we need an economic version of NATO, someone who's willing to step in and be an alternative lender to these countries, someone who can, uh, who can help when China is forcing you to vote on things you don't want to do, right? Like you need, you need a power, you need a, you need a competing power in the area for economics. Well, maybe. And that's, that's what soon. I foresee. That should be too soon because one power that I think would actually use hard power against China is India. Like, yes, absolutely. China and India having, they hate law, each other. They, I mean, didn't they? Sure. Didn't they almost go to war? Like a hundred? Weren't there almost a hundred casualties in a uh, fight in territory in recently border. within the last year? In a, yeah, in a border war. Um, yeah, I mean, it cannot be overstated how when you go online and you see people like, you know, Indian citizens when they talk about China, it is with like a fervor. You oh know, yeah, like they are insanely enraged by China. And that really, that scares me, because what we do not need is the world's we biggest... We do not need a nuclear war between war. India and China. <laughs> India yeah. and China, because... We'll Fun fact, India... Into it. Oh, absolutely. Fun fact, India is one of the four nations in the world with hypersonic nuclear missiles today. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> definitely knows that. Uh, yeah, well, Pakistan doesn't have them yet, which is a problem, too. Which is um, a problem. For them, but, problem for them. It's good for the rest. And, of and also, in terms of territory expansion, I should rephrase that because China is interested in expanding into the well, South China Sea and so also they, into Hong Kong and Taiwan. 
and Taiwan. They're very interested into expanding into Hong Kong. And that's why what was interesting, a day before this meeting with Blinken and the foreign minister, the U.S. slapped 24 sanctions on Chinese officials and Hong Kong officials using uh, the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. Uh, It was passed by Donald Trump. And they did so because when you dig into this, it's sort of um, it's really creepy how they're doing this, because what they're doing is there are loyalists in Hong Kong who are using, you know, their Hong Kong government, the autonomous government of Hong Kong. They're loyalists. They're expanding the committees and the legislator legislature. I'm sorry to include more Beijing loyalists. Right. And then they're also um, including a. Candidate Qualification Review Committee. That's what it's called. I mean, how yeah, Orwellian you can just, can you can just take out any candidate who isn't completely loyal to China. Because one of the things they do, and they did this with Alexei Navalny in Russia, is they make things a crime. They yeah. say, you can't, you can't run for office if you're a criminal. Okay? Like, that's pretty basic, guys. Right. All right? No running for so, office if you're a criminal. Then they make you a criminal for some random, like, sedition against China act. And yep. then when people who are pro Hong Kong try to run for legislature, they go, whoa, 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 he's a criminal. You're a criminal. You, you know? can't do that. Yeah. That's what they did with I, Alexei Navalny, right? I mean, I just kind of, so this is a sad opinion and one that I'm not, you know, happy about having. I don't think there's any way in which to free Hong Kong from the grasp of China. I think I that- so either. We, we agree. There was, you know- Especially since it was signed over as a protectorate already. When was that going to expire? 2050? Something like that? Um, yeah. And then, and then China has you know, control over it. I, there, was no, there was no real way in which they were ever going to remain free. In my opinion, I think that regime is too dominant. Um, especially if you have a legal you know, binding contract where you're signed over. Unless before that happened they were freed. Um, so I'm, I've been really impressed by, with, what, with what Britain is doing um, in order to you know, grant Hong Kong citizens uh, citizenship to Britain. I think that's great. Um, I think that's great too. Well, but it's, it's, it's a, sad. <laughs> it's a sad and hard position because the reality is, and, and you know this, when you look back, you know, it's, Hong Kong was a colony yeah. of Britain. And yeah. so when China is talking about Hong Kong, for them, they're talking about a, a part of their history where they had little to no power. They were a poor yep. country that was dominated by Japan. It was dominated by Britain. It was dominated by um, imperial powers who would just take over land on their shore, set up little protectorates, and then exploit their population. Yeah, and they, they would sell use economic power in order to make the rest of China more subservient to them. Um, yeah, there's the and, opium wars, yeah. right? They would just use yeah, them exactly. essentially as cash cows right. um, to exploit their population. And so it, it was never going to be that Hong Kong was like, this is a place that um, was, was going to have autonomy. The British no. kind of signed them up for this death warrant. They, they signed this away. And it's um, it's it's fascinating, right? Because they because they were not under the Great Firewall, right? They know everything. Like yeah, this is that's why this I, is a, I feel so bad. This I mean, is a fairly large population of people that China. It if I was China, I would actually be hoping that most of the people take the opt out, right? Because 
you don't want a large influx of a population into mainland China or just like under the Chinese authority where they know everything else. Like that's part of that's part of the that's part of the beauty of their 1984 style government is that they you know I say beauty sarcastically because they're horrible and repressive, but prevent like dictating what is true and what is not true is so key to their control over their population. Um, moving on to so moving on to Taiwan, I think that is a place that actually can be defended um, if the U.S. wants to commit to it. I was reading a while ago about a you know like a military strategy that would actually work, which is that you have if if the U.S. was willing to fund it, um, you have submarines full of Taiwanese soldiers constantly patrolling the uh, the waters in which they would have to cross in order to take over Taiwan. Um, and then they can, you know, destroy ships before they get there and make any invasion really costly. That, like, for example, that's... And since, since Taiwan is disputed internationally about whether or not it's a country, whether or not it's part of China, they say it is, we say, it, it, you know, we don't really say anything. Um, but that's the type of thing that would take a lot of doing to actually bring under their control do we have it's well within their reach but what do they have the stomach for it i mean yeah exactly like do they want to do they want to go to war yeah i mean there's hey you know i'm an anti-war person there's something to be said when you have to defend yourself against tyranny and and tyrannical governments like china that are trying to really take you over because they're serious like they are they they said they who doesn't even acknowledge that taiwan is a place Right, there was an infamous, yeah. Yeah. There was an infamous right. interview where a Taiwanese news anchor, for people who aren't familiar, remember, she said, you know, what do you think about Taiwan outrolling the vaccine and how we've done with our sanctions? And he goes, oh, we've already talked about China. And then he pretended <laughs> that his camera went off and he yeah. rejoined. He was like, oh, I think we should just move on. We talked about China. So, well, and you know what? They, like, what else are they going to do? Right. China's their biggest funder and the U.S. pulled out under Donald Trump. Like what? They, and this is. And I mean, that, that brings me to my biggest grievance with the U.S. today. We set up in the 1940s and 50s, we set up international organizations that disproportionately favor us. And they make the rules of international trade and interactions very clear and, and also very favorable to a democratic nation like the U.S. We need to keep those in place. We need to strengthen them. We can't be fu- pulling out funding of the WHO. We can't be leaving NATO. We can't be doing any of these ridiculous things that Trump was doing under the name of protectionism because it's the opposite of a U.S. interest. Yeah, well, let's move on to something that is more in line with NATO, and that was Putin right. challenging Biden to a debate. Which... Okay, well, so like everyone's talking about that. Putin also threatened Biden's life. But, like that was something that happened. He wished, you know, in a very in a semi-threatening manner, he wished him to have good health when, you know, he was talking about uh when when he was asked about whether or not uh Biden said Biden thinks he's a killer, like what do you think about that? And you know, this is in the in the wake of uh Alexei Navalny being poisoned almost certainly at this point by Putin, right? Like you're sure. 
I, I, I kind of see what you're saying. I don't know if Putin necessarily would. I mean, let's let's. It's not a direct the threat, left, but like there's, you, you know, there. It's pretty credible. Due to the last four years, the the liberal side of American politics are very angry with Russia. Like it is, I, I'm reminded of what Barack Obama said to Mitt Romney at the uh, at the debate in 2012. You know, 1980s called. They want their foreign policy back. That Ooh. was sort of. That was how the world looked at Russia because they really aren't a superpower anymore. They have, no. you know, a pretty big economy, but they're reliant it's, on um, energy exports. Well, not only it's, energy export, but fossil fuel exports, which are, you know, going out of style quick. They're going to be irrelevant in this as an economy because, in this century. Know, this is a, a statistic I had to look up today because I was kind of curious, you know, energy exports, natural gas made up 36% of their federal budget revenue. Oh my god. Like, that, uh, yeah, you so can't when, you can't survive. The Nord Stream pipeline. Right, we're talking about yeah, the Nord Stream sure. pipeline and and Biden said that well, we don't know if Russia uh, or uh, Germany should do this because it makes them too reliant on Russia. And that's an opinion I had and brought up with Ruth and Ruth was talking about how they really needed it in Germany. Yeah. It was a it was a big deal. Um and then I I got to thinking, no no, if, if they put in this pipeline, Germany has a way to cut off Russian federal budgets. Yeah, they exactly. Are very, and so it's Russia a, it's is a, like, it's a dual, it's a dual street. We well, I mean, it's interesting, yeah. right? Because any the reason the U.S. still has a vested interest in the Middle East outside of preventing terrorism. I, this is going to be a roundabout way to get back to Russia. Don't worry. I'm getting there, Matt. Don't worry. Um, the reason we still have a vested interest is that... Uh, the oil exports that come out of the Middle East from countries like Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf nations, those primarily go to Europe. And that, and, you know, keeping that trade supply going is really important for the U.S. Um, because we want our allies to be strong. Um, and we want their economies to be flourishing and we want their militaries to be well supplied with oil. If Russia becomes this, you know, main supplier in a way that we probably um, would prefer not. Well, we definitely would. We don't want. It does give Germany and France and the rest of Europe a fair amount of power over Russia. Especially if, you know, because every dollar is going to start counting, well, not dollar, every euro is going to start counting even more for Russia as the clock is kind of running out on their entire economic system. Yeah, and, you know, there is something to be said that economies, and this is one of the, uh, you know, uh, dichotomies of, of China, economies that have strong trade relations rarely go to war with one another. Yes. At, because, you know, I mean, let's be honest, at the end of the day, everyone wants to make some money. Rise all it's votes. It's the money. The money. People just want the votes. The votes and the money. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I really am not concerned with Russia. Like, I... I really I'm not either. See Russia as an ex they're not expansionist. They don't have the power. I mean, they have these this war in Ukraine, which Donald Trump sent over weapons. Um, and so it's this sort of this weird thing that happened where Donald Trump would say nice things about Russia or wouldn't say anything bad about Russia, but on the back end he was putting on sanctions and sending weapons over to Ukraine nationalists. Um, something you have written here is that you know Russia is threatening action if Bosnia joins NATO. I have no interest, I'm sorry, in, in <laughs> letting Bosnia join NATO. I really don't. I, I mean, so here's my... I want to keep expanding NATO. We said we weren't going to expand it. 
We expanded it even further, closer to their border. What do you want them to do? Really? Because, I mean, this is what's happening, right? Like, I understand Bosnia was a former um, Soviet state, but, you know, the Soviet Union is no more. Russia retreated back to its borders. They're not going to Bosnia. Yeah. So, in my opinion, there's, there, there's two ways to look at this. First is America as an idealist, where we want to protect the democratic freedom of the nations of the world. Um, and I think that Bosnia joining NATO would be a big step in accomplishing that. Um, I also think that with the laundry list of priorities that the U.S. has right now, it's not necessarily the sword we want to die on, right? Um, I, it's it's really let's, let's be I'm conflicted about it because Let, you. Let's be honest, you, Robert, because I know, I know you have these ideals, but when if Bosnia joins NATO, and Russia takes action, are are you willing to mobilize the United States military for Bosnia? Now listen, yeah, there's a lot of I mean, if they. I mean, the question, like that question, that that's not a question that you actually, that you actually have to, I don't have to think about that for a second, because if they're in NATO, then you have to do it. You have to show force immediately. Otherwise, NATO has no meaning, right? That That's not a question that, um, the, the question is whether or not you want to take the strategic risk of going to war with Russia over Bosnia, right? Because... It's interesting because after a certain point, you can't, the U.S. as powerful as it is, probably can't protect the democracy of every nation, right? There are how too many other... Bosnia? Exactly. You know, like, how? If they, them joining NATO would be a way in which they, um, in, in a way in which we could protect them. But what I would suspect is that if they started to join NATO before it became actually official, Russia would invade or do, take action in some way to prevent them from actually joining. Because stage I, two. They, right, exactly. That, that's probably what they, would happen. So there, there is take action, right? That's, there's something. There's some, there's some way in which they would prevent them from joining NATO. Because um, one thing that um, I've heard is that a lot of people, not a lot of people out there, Ether, you know what I mean. Um, the people. With this whole Crimea situation where people really think the United States needs to step up and defend Crimea. Now, Crimea was a former Russian state. It was formerly Russian, and it was signed over by a Soviet... Okay, there's a crazy story. Um, I'll, I'll send you something at some point. Where some, like, governor in the Soviet Union... You know, I'm using governor loosely, whatever their term for what? is. Autocrat. Signed over... Yeah, he signed over the rights to Ukraine, like, one day, randomly for some deal, and then he was kicked out of office. It's not right. like Ukraine, or uh, I'm sorry, Crimea, like rose up and was like, we need you know autonomy from Russia. It was like this weird administra administration blunder that also guarantees Russia a seaport on the Black Sea. That's why they want it. That's, want that's it really all they care about. They just want that, they they want want that access point. Yeah. And so is the United States willing to stop Russia from getting that port? Again, like I I don't know that I don't know how we would do that, and I don't know if we I mean, necessarily should. Russia is a Russia is a disaster waiting to happen, right? Once their once their economy um, 
bottoms out because you know once the world moves on from fossil fuels that is a country with more nuclear weapons than the u.s that are that will be going through complete political turmoil i think the u.s's major responsibility in the world right now with russia is preventing them from taking over nations right like you know objective like destroying democracy in nations that we are allied with and we protect um and also to reduce their nuclear arsenal through treaties with us because if you reach a point where you know there's a revolution or there are armed non-state actors in russia for example right you, like what if you can't pay the military anymore because you don't have the money like people aren't serving because they i'm, I'm talking like 100 years from now i'm not talking not uh, probably not within our lifetimes but i mean a lot large sections of their economy are run by the russian mafia like this isn't that crazy okay so maybe i am talking within our lifetimes then yeah but like if the the real the real responsibility to the world that the US has is to prevent a nuclear weapon from being detonated or um you know ha falling into the hands of a non-state actor um and Russia is a prime place that you know they already went through a revolution when the Soviet Union fell that was one of the things that was absolutely imperative to US strategy was preventing nuclear weapons from falling into the wrong hands um that's just yeah like this is just one more way in which it could happen. Yeah, and you know, they're really trying to be flexible and pivot away from their natural gas and they're trying to do things in IT, in telecommunications, like this is what they're trying to pivot towards. And you know, we saw recently with the solar winds hack, you know, they're they're really putting a lot of energy behind stealing and affecting American infrastructure in that way. That's a, the the weird thing about that though is right when you when you have a hack like that you're basically admitting to the world that you actually cannot invent things the way that we can right you're you're saying we are decades behind you we have no ability to actually like do this ourselves so it's a it's a last ditch de desperation play that the us needs better defense against first of all um but yeah it it's I'm it's revealing about what they have going for them yeah, I'm not sure how much you looked into the the solar winds hack. Um, for people who are you know a little bit unfamiliar, there was a report released by some Swiss researchers recently. Um, they they codenamed this this group Silverfish, which is an interesting name. The very evil Doctor No. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it sounds evil like villain guy. evil. But um, essentially, it, it, they're one of these groups, and this is the way they knew it was sort of a state-sponsored attack, is because they got into Silverfish's servers. <laughs> and they found they found that they were not only located in Ukraine and Russia, but they were also only working from eight AM to eight PM Monday through Friday. <laughs> so it was oh, like man. This is a, this it's is like, like it's so thing. obvious. <laughs> yeah, um, so But you know, they they also said, you know, they weren't motivated by money. They're just trying to really lash out at the United States and, and affect um their digital infrastructure well i mean so. they did it at the perfect time right they did it right as um they did it right as trump was leaving office you know he's not going to do anything he's so loyal to russia and completely unfocused on um what's going on it i don't know if he's i'm going to push back right there. i don't know if he's loyal to russia i really just think he doesn't have any clue 
And he's just so ignorant that if someone says something nice about him, he can't help himself but not say something mean back. I mean, I, I think there are significant ties between his business ventures and a lot of Russian actors. And we may never know the full truth, but it would be my suspicion that he has some formal or informal ties to uh, Russian power. Um, Maybe. I'm not, I'm not saying he's like a sleeper agent, but... <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, like you know I, what I mean. I think I that I think that there was a personal right. interest in him being softer on Russia, and you know, um, not like not only that he just prefers authoritarian power, um, which he clearly demonstrated over his four years um, to de to democratic ones, but that there was something for him to gain. Um, yeah, from, I, from his actions. We'll never know. I mean, there are some who said like Miss Universe pageants, they were all in Russia. And I mean, he did have some, some business interests over there. But I, I really, I think at the end of the day, Donald Trump really was just this ignorant guy who had no idea what he was talking about. And uh, he could be persuaded, depending on who was in the room last with him, you could tell him anything and he would believe you. He just likes, you know, people well, I think, smoke. I think he also thought he was always the smartest guy in the room, right? Which is insane. Which is insane because right. he clearly wasn't. But um, it's you know it's a uh, I think we're you know we're we're in a very dangerous time in U.S. politics. But um, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the you know the defeat of Donald Trump in this election was the first step in getting back to um, good U.S. politics and good U.S. policy. And we'll see. You know, it's the next it's the next ten twenty years that'll really make the difference. For sure. And I think, uh, you know, we'll pick up this conversation next week. I know we have a few things on the docket. We'll dive a little bit more into the culture. War um, looking forward to is, it. Yeah. And sort of uh, what maybe we can talk about what good U.S. policy should be over the next sure. 10 to 15 years and whether or not the Republicans have an answer, because I actually don't think they have an answer for what good policy should be at this point. In time. I, they really are lost. Um, I don't everything. either, and I, I really think that's going to cost them until they basically are forced to come up with it. Um, but and we'll see. Where it's leading them and sort of the trends in the Republican Party, and we'll, I know we, we will, see and we'll talk little, about this next time. Is, we'll talk about this next time, is they're going towards right-wing populism, and that yep. is the trend that is coming up. Dead is the party of Reagan, and, and coming up soon is... You know, Republicans who are for entitlements, Republicans, you know, who at the end of the day just want to own the libs, as that uh, political article yes. you uh, shared and, with me earlier said. And we'll uh, and let yeah, we'll take that on with uh, the culture wars and um, the future of the Republican Party next week. Um, All right. Well, yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to it too. Thank you, Robert. Again, you can check out this is the Latinique's politics refresh. You can catch our writing up there at Latinique news um search us there on google robert do you have anything to plug are you running anything right now yeah i am uh i'm almost done with a piece about andrew cuomo and um I, I find it fascinating how a man can go from because he was basically you know the the leader on the virus crisis for several months you know he was intensely popular and has now fallen into a place of you know um political disgrace and is really, you know, if not um, defeated, almost there. So I, I think the, the fast rise and fall of Andrew Cuomo is something that fascinates me. So I wrote a little article about it, and that'll be on Montanique soon. 
Well, I'm interested in reading it because I am just loving Andrew Cuomo's tears because I can't stand the guy. I couldn't stand his, uh, he's got that, like that style of old school Italian. Let me tell you how it is. And when you look back at, at what he was doing and how he was treating his staffers, I mean, it, it was like, it, he does not sound like a like fun man. boss. No, it was like, I mean, um, and you know, that's a, that's a gross oversimplification of how he mistreated and abused women in his office for decades. Um, but well, you know, the, somehow the court of public opinion doesn't seem entirely made up yet to me. Um, but I think it's getting there. I, I have two minutes actually. Do you think that's because, and I saw an interesting thesis on why that is because Andrew Cuomo said he's not going to step down. Uh, so I think it's is that because so I think it's Trump? twofold. I think I think like I think first of all, we're even even liberals are a bit more numb to that than we were in 2016 because Donald Trump has had I think it's 29 credible accusations of sexual assault or rape while he was president, and that's that's a lot. That's a lot to stomach as anyone. You know, that's like if you're politically conscious, you you know that you're a president for a significant amount of time was. A hor- like a you know a violent, uh, guilty criminal again, yeah, I, and I know. you know predator yeah. predator against women is what I was trying to say. Um, and then yes, I do think that like not backing down does have some relevance in that way because you're basically saying I'm not guilty. You know if you if you resign, you're pleading guilty in the court of public opinion, in my opinion. But if you don't do that and you don't back down and you wait for the investigation to play out you are a lot better positioned to try to claw your way out of the abyss. But he, but make no mistake, he's in the abyss. He's not... Yeah. He just hasn't hit the it's ground turn out because We don't know how it's going to turn out because, you know, the governor of Virginia was caught in a picture wearing blackface and somehow he hung on because he refused to <laughs> step down. So, Andrew Cole, I, I mean... I, I, saw, I saw something... I saw something amazing about a, uh, about a Republican in some state legislator who voted against, a, voted against a bill supporting transgender rights and then was immediately caught looking at transgender porn on his laptop in the chamber. Right? Yeah, what? <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I, can't, I can't get over that because it's just so ridiculous, right? Like what level of irony you have there. Um, I... I don't understand it. Like, how do you do that? Right. How do you, there there is something to be said about all those uh, super Christian conservative people who are against gay marriage. We're actually, you know, seeing (laughs) Well, that, but we'll see. Um, Time will tell, I guess. Um, So, all right, let's get out of here. Yeah. Well, thanks for, uh, yeah. Thanks for joining the Latinx politics refresh. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks. Bye.